and welcome to the Zoe Health Podcast, a conversation where we explore topics that affect women's health and wellness and matter to you. I'm your host, Dr. Nontlantlas Tole, co-founder of Zoe Health, your all-in-one women's health and wellness platform. We love hearing from you and interacting with you, so please join the conversation in our community chat to let us know what your views are or to share your own stories about the topic we'll be covering today. For more information, please visit www.zoehealth.com. Zoe is spelled Z-O-I-E. We hope you love listening to the podcast. Please remember, any information we share here is not a substitute for a consultation with a qualified health professional. So make sure you book your next consult soon. Let's get started. Today, we are talking about the big O, the ever-elusive female orgasm. And my guests today are Dr. Londiwe Gunene. She practices as an OBGYN and a sexual and reproductive health educator. And she also serves as the medical liaison for the Honey Bun South Africa platform that focuses on sexual health and wellness. We are also very happy to have Lindiwe Rasekwala, who is a life coach who specializes in intimacy and relationship wellness coaching. Lindy is a sexual health enthusiast and an online contributor. Um, okay, so let's kick off with you, Dr. Londiwe. So I think the best way to start is just maybe give us the basics of, you know, physiologically, what is involved with the female orgasm? What is it? How do we get it? So like on a very basic, um, like very basic layman's term, it's basically the peak of sexual excitement. Um, so some people call it climax, some people call it orgasm. Those are usually the names that it goes by. Um, and it's that sudden peak sensation where you reach um, intense, intense pleasure during sexual excitement. Um, and essentially the physiology involved with it all. So, um, I mean, different, different people quote different things, but there are essentially four stages to sexual pleasure, right? So you get the stage of excitement um, and that's that initial stage when you're getting into it, um, your blood vessels will start to open up so they dilate. And that's when all the, the blood flow goes to your sexual organs or your genital organs. So you'll have um, blood flow going to your vagina where it'll cause a bit of swelling of the vagina, swelling of the vulva and that lubrication and it allows your vagina and vulva to swell up and it becomes um, a little bit wetter. Um, you also get blood flow going into your clitoris, which is the main organ for um, sexual pleasure. Uh, what happens at that point then in your body is your heart rate starts to quicken, your breathing starts to quicken, your blood pressure goes up as well. And um, with all of this excitement happening, it reaches a second stage, which we now call plateau, where your genital organs now become, let's call it, they become firm. And um, your body is readying itself for that peak pleasure. So your muscles will start contracting and that's when you now have your orgasm. Your muscles contract and you get this intense, intense, intense sensation of pleasure where, and orgasms are different for different people, but essentially um, it's just that intense outflow. Um, and then you get into a stage that we call resolution. And that's when your body is now going back to its normal state. I think an important thing to note just with female orgasms is sometimes within that resolution phase, if you get stimulated again, you can have another orgasm as opposed to men where they have to go through like a stage of rest before they can orgasm again. So even though men orgasm more than us because it's easier for them to orgasm, when we do, it's 
it's much more explosive. And our orgasms, um, our orgasms tend to last a little bit longer than the average male orgasm. So it could be anything from like um, 13 seconds to about 51 seconds, which is generally longer than the average male orgasm. Um, so that's just the basic, basic physiology involved with it all and how the whole process goes about. Okay, great. Thanks for that. So Lindy, tell us a little bit more. Um, let's talk about the clitoris and the G-spots, right? Now, you know, I mean, it, sometimes it takes a while for you to recognize that maybe those two are not the same things. Is there such a thing as a G-spot? And what, what do those two elements of your anatomy have to do with you getting an orgasm? So the G-spot is actually hidden just behind the hood of the clitoris inside the vagina itself. And when the two simultaneously are stimulated, you're more likely to get an orgasm. However, you could potentially get an orgasm from uh, stimulating either one of them separately. So a lot of people tend to think that the clitoris is the G-spot because we have 8,000 nerve endings there and people think, okay, if I just DJ in this area, then I've got it going. But <laughs> unfortunately, different women have different, um, as Dr. Londiwe has said, different women experience uh, orgasms from different types of stimulation. There's even anal orgasms. So depending on your body type um, and how you are stimulated, what it could potentially be that is being stimulating, whether it's through vibration, whether it's through additional lubrication of the mouth um, or whether it's through the fingers or even penetration with a penis or a dildo, um, that will depend on how and um, at what intensity you orgasm. Uh, some women, for me example, I can't orgasm just from clitoral stimulation. Um, I, I can feel the sensation and I can feel the stimulation, but in order to reach that heightened peak of excitement is only when I have the simultaneous, um, okay, so as I said, it's behind the, the hood of the clitoris. And it's kind of like if you put your fingers inside um, as you are facing the entrance of the vagina, it's just like in a come hither moment um, motion. So it's just um, on, against that wall. And stimulating that area as well as the clitoris at the same time is what makes me personally orgasm. So um, I think that's how you'd kind of be able to differentiate the two. Um, and a lot of the time, even if you are pleasuring yourself, you should be able to identify that part of your own body so that you know kind of how to guide your partner to get you to a heightened peak of excitement. You know, I think that's one of the things that, you know, as a woman, as the, the older you get and more experience you get in terms of sexuality, is understanding that it also, you also need to be able to identify or find out how your own body works and what gives you pleasure um, and you know making sure that you know your own body enough to know what's going to stimulate you I think that's that's uh, getting to know your body I, I believe is one of the really important things in, in making sure that you reach that you know that orgasm if it's, if it's um, you know something you've never experienced um, and then just speaking about never experiencing I've, I was reading up to a couple of very scary stats about some women who, who don't orgasm even from penetration. Um, and I mean, I was thinking as you were talking that, you know, that might speak to the location of what you've just said now is the G-spot. I mean, why, why do we have this high number of women who are not orgasming, orgasming just from, you know, penetrative sex? Well, you know, aside from not necessarily getting the location correct, 
sex is very psychological. And a lot of the time we can tend to block certain um, feelings and it could potentially be based on past traumatic experiences, religious beliefs, uh, cultural beliefs, whatever the case may be, um, gender-based um, expectations. Um, you know, a lot of the time women are known for reproduction and not necessarily pleasure. Uh, sex, pleasure and women are not necessarily synonymous, or at least they haven't been in the past. And I'm really, really happy that women are starting to find their voice and starting to say, no, this is what I like and what I don't like. Um, but it's going to take a while. It's going to take a lot of practice. It's going to take a lot of destigmatization um, across the board from both men and women in order for you to know that pleasure is an, an okay thing. Um, and also, I know, for example, for myself, there was a very long time where I didn't like orgasms. I didn't like the loss of control. I didn't like being out of control of my body because I was just like, I'm a little bit of a control freak. So how am I also handing over that control to someone else and all you're doing is maybe touching a certain part and all of a sudden I'm like convulating and my body is shaking and you know it was just very foreign to me um and until I started to feel comfortable and trusting with a partner where I was okay to relinquish that power to that person then I started to enjoy it and to an extent it's still not even multiple orgasms. I do not like multiple orgasms because not only is it a psychological release, but it's a physical release. And if you are exerting so much power or rather um, if you are releasing all of this energy, you get, you can get tired. And I don't, I like to have a whole bunch of energy that I've built up in order to enjoy the orgasm to its fullest. I don't like like mini orgasms. So the moment I'm done, like, and my partner knows the moment I've orgasmed, we need to stop because I don't like that draining of the energy coming from me because I'm like, I'm tired. I want to be present. I want to feel like I'm able to physically give in this engagement. But the moment I'm just laying there because I'm unable, because you've drained my energy, chances are I'm not going to necessarily enjoy it as much. And then it's also still then more for the man because, Ooh, I made you orgasm and I'm powerful. And yeah, I made your toes curl. And then it's not so much about the person. So you have to be very sure about the person you're engaging with, how much they're willing to take, what they're willing to um, not take, what they enjoy, um, if they like multiple orgasms or not. And, and that's only something you'll be able to express if you know yourself, which is why I highly encourage masturbation. Well, listen, I would love to do a poll. I mean, you know, if we can if we can put our hands up, those of us who have experienced multiple orgasms, I want to take your names down and chat to you after this so that you can give me some tips. Um, so I would, would love love to hear. Let's see, guys. Let's just do a general poll. I want to see the multiple orgasms. So put your, raise your hand here. We want to see who you are. So now I'm thinking to myself, what are what are the biological issues that may make you not orgasm very easily. I mean, is there something that could be an underlying condition that would um, stop a woman able to orgasm? Yeah, before I answer the question, I'm just going to raise my hand here as a multiple orgasmer. And I quite like it, unlike Lindy. I don't know. It's just, yeah, in the beginning, I didn't understand orgasms. So it was always just, the feeling was strange. So I would stop myself. You know, it was that psychological like barrier to it. And I think once I started getting into it and understanding my body Damn, you know, and multiple orgasms are, yeah, no, that's my thing. That's my thing. Quite enjoy it. But um, to get to the question, so um, 
some women don't have orgasms at all. So you can get something called primary anorgasmia where you don't experience orgasms. And sometimes it's not even a medical condition per se. But um, as Lindy so rightfully said, sex is a very psychological thing as well. And it could just be like a mental block or some form of um, response from a psychological trauma or something that's happened before where you don't actually just reach that point of orgasm. Um, it could be because you don't know your own body and how to stimulate your body. Not everybody, like orgasming is very individualized. Um, and I don't think you as a person have the same orgasms over and over again. So the more you open yourself up to learning new things and opening your mind up to new things, you'll actually realize that your body is capable of orgasming from many different stimuli. So you might you might orgasm from clitoral stimulation, um, you know, and uh, realizing the fact that even as an individual, you might orgasm from multiple different things and you are capable of experiencing different types of orgasm as one person. So the more you open your mind up to actually, like in, how can I put it, enjoying sex and opening your mind up to the possibilities of sex and what your body can and can't do, I think you start understanding it better. And I think one of the main things, like psychologically, not necessarily biologically, that leads to anorgasmia is that, um, but you can have some conditions, like some um, medical gynecological conditions that can stop you from having um, orgasms. So in some conditions where you, like vaginal dryness, for example, it could be because of like a decrease in um, your estrogen levels. This could be secondary to a cancer, maybe. Um, it could be changing, like changes in your reproductive cycle. Even things like um, pregnancy, for example, you know, can predispose you to having either increased or decreased libido and therefore increased or decreased um, orgasm. Um, if you're struggling with depression and anxiety, that's also quite a biggie when it comes to um, leading to people not experiencing orgasms as such. And the medications that are used to treat um, anxiety and depression, which is why I think it's just one of the saddest things ever because now you have this combo of things coming together. Like it's the condition itself, but it's also what you're using to treat the condition. And that's one of the, the really, really big things that contributes to decreased um, libido and women not experiencing orgasms. And it's possible for someone to have something called secondary and orgasmia as well, where you've previously had orgasms and now for whatever reason, um, you're not having orgasms at all. And it's just important to... I think the more in tune you are with your body, you know, and um, like realizing that something is up and actually seeking help because there are people like Lindy out there, um, you know, who specialize and like deal with um, sexual intimacy and they coach women. Um, people like myself who are just interested. I mean, I, I don't really have any sexology credentials or anything, but just the interest in sexual health. So there, there's help out there. And I think because it's become so taboo, people aren't... Um, readily willing to go out and seek help or they're too scared to ask the relevant questions, you know, too scared to reach out because of fear of stigmatization, judgment, and all of those other things, you know, and being, being labeled as hypersexual, like, why are you even asking about this? Because you're not supposed to, you know, those types of things. So I think it's just like, I'm glad we're having this conversation because it really just speaks to how women should prioritize their pleasure because pleasure is a big part of sexual health. And these are the conversations we need to be having and making people more comfortable with actually seeking help. Okay, so talking, is, is talking here about vaginismus, um, 
Now, maybe you can tell us a little bit more, explain to us maybe what vaginismus is. I have heard of it, but, um, you know, how do you help women like that get get out of their heads? And how do you even know if you've got vaginismus if you, if you don't have um, I'll, I'll ask Lindy to help me here a bit. Um, I think, like, a lot of it is psychological training. So I'll, I'll speak from, like, a medical perspective, and then I'll just ask Lindy to jump in with the psychology um, of it all. With vaginismus, we generally tend to treat women with the use of um, dilators, right? So what that does is, because essentially what happens when you have vaginismus, it's that it's almost as if your, your vagina closes up when you're about to experience a sexual encounter. So um, with some patients, like um, during sexual penetration, for example, so it, it's just like, it, it's more like a mental, it, it, it's not only a mental block. I think it's like a proper physical block as well, but where you, you can't experience um, penetration. And uh, yeah, what we tend to do is we use vaginal dilators. So those come in, multiple different sizes. And essentially what we're doing is it's vaginal training um, for your vagina to become used to having something inside it. We start very, very small with like the smallest size dilator and they can go up to uh, like a diameter or circumference of about um, that big. So taking women through it slowly, it's like using Kegel balls and like grading, grading it up, you know, starting from a beginner level all the way to, I would guess the person who's like really experienced where um, you try and take that um, that contraction because that's what it is. Your body physically contracts and it stops um, penetration from happening. Uh, so from a medical perspective, generally the treatment of it is um, that vaginal dilation, but a lot of it, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of it is uh, psychotherapy and um yeah, just like the psychological training of it all. And maybe Lindy can jump in here and go on about how she maybe coaches um, patients or people who've come to her with vaginismus and what works. It is definitely psychological. Um, but not only that, because your body and your mind work hand in hand, you have to start to trust yourself. So with the with the psychotherapy, what we or what I do rather is I start to get partners or couples to touch each other's erogenous zones and try and get your body in a relaxed state so that all of your muscles are relaxed and not just you focusing on trying to relax and trying to get your whole body to relax as opposed to just one focused area. Because the moment you do that, you start to also with, for example, like with the dilators, I would recommend also Kegel balls because having that um, control over that particular area, like doing just Kegel exercises, knowing when you can hold your Wii and not, that also um, is some training that I would use for um, men who have premature ejaculation. Because it's literally just strengthening your pelvic floor, but also not only strengthening your pelvic floor, having control over your pelvic floor. So knowing when and how to release, when and how to relax. And for example, um, when you're able to hold those Kegel balls in and release, you know, that is sort of, you know, when you're able to relax your muscles and it's also a psychological thing. So you start to trust yourself. So the moment you are training yourself to learn and understand your body's muscles and not just your vagina in itself, then you start to be able to trust yourself when it comes to your vagina. 
And therefore, you also start to now trust your partner. But just from a psychological point of view, knowing that you can feel pleasure outside of the vaginal area itself can sometimes help you relax and you won't even realize that all of a sudden you're being penetrated. Um, it definitely is a mental thing. It definitely is something that takes a lot longer to um, kind of overcome as opposed to just not being able to orgasm because some women can experience pleasure without the orgasm, but vaginismus is literally when your vaginal muscles tense up and you physically are expelling or like um, ensuring that the, the thing that is penetrating you isn't allowed to enter. So it does take quite a bit of work, but mostly just we, I deal with mostly being able to trust yourself and trust your body, trust your muscles and train your muscles. All right. You were talking about, um, you know, working with a partner here. So let's talk a little bit about um, why we have so many women faking orgasms. Um, and if that's you and you've reached a point where you're like, you know what, I'm trying to get mine now. How do you start talking to your partner about the fact that maybe, you know, he wasn't necessarily making the parts as much as he thought he was. So how do we start to broach that subject if we're with current partners who maybe, you know, we embellished a little bit in the past and now we're actually feeling like we want to take control, but you got to have that talk to say, listen, you know, <laughs> so, um, I do a workshop called the sex tour, which is basically a tour of your body before, during and after sex. And I always say that feedback is so important the same way consent is. You need to ensure at the beginning that this is what you want and this is how you want it and you are sure of it as well as during. And it can be the simplest of things like a whisper and are you okay, baby, do you like this? And that still heightens, you know, the, the, the stimulation and the enjoyment as opposed to let's have a sit down and say what I did and didn't like. When it comes to the aftercare, which is probably the most important um, or almost as important as foreplay, it's very important to have that feedback session, not necessarily where you are saying what the person did wrong, but highlight the things that you enjoyed. Say, I really like the fact that we took a shower together before we started because it really relaxed me. And, you know, once you start to tell someone the positives, when you do lay down the negatives and you say, um, you know, maybe next time we could try this position as opposed to saying you sucked. I really, really didn't enjoy that because you really damage someone's ego. And that's what's going to take your next experience to the top or not have that experience at all and completely shatter your partner's confidence as to whether they even want to experiment or try something new the next time. So I do recommend having, you know, let's have a shower together afterwards and highlight the good things, thing, the things that you enjoy, the things that you like, give suggestions. Suggestions are always a great way to kind of say what you do like without saying what you don't like um, and without and being sensitive to the person that you're engaging with but feedback throughout or if you just want to like you know when you're having sex and you say can we change positions there's nothing wrong with asking a question you're not saying you don't like that position you're not saying that this person is doing anything wrong you're giving a suggestion to do something new so there's always ways of trying to kind of work away getting information um, and also giving that information to ensure that you have 
a great pleasurable experience. As for faking it, it really does nothing for you or for the person who's going to potentially engage with the person you're having sex with. It really, really is unfortunate that we've gotten to the point where you're either just wanting this experience to be done. So you're going to fake it so he can think that, oh, wow, I've made it. And then it's over. But if that is the case, have the guts or the courage enough to explain where or how he could have gone wrong. Is it speed? And it's always something you can pinpoint. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a comparison to previous experiences, but it can literally be like, I prefer it when we go a little slower. I prefer deeper strokes as opposed to more shallow. I prefer the stimulation of my clitoris as you penetrate me. I like doing doggy. I like doing um, missionary because I like the eye, um, I like it when we can look in each other's eyes and that creates intimacy. So, you know, just saying the things that you do like will definitely ensure that your partner knows not necessarily what you don't like, but how to try something new for the next time to try and get you there. And also be patient. Like there is no manual to sex. We are not taught this in life orientation and not one person is going to enjoy sex the exact same way as another person. You have to teach your partner or teach the person who you're sexually, sexually engaging with how your body works. And you can only do that if you know it yourself. So it's all well and good to say, ah, oh, he never made me orgasm. But do you know what makes you orgasm? Do you know what makes you tick and what's going to be a sure guarantee that this pleasurable experience was 10 out of 10? Because it also won't always be that way. And if it's someone who you care about and someone you love, then you must have the patience to teach them and to ensure that they have the time to get to a point where you're both satisfied. Great advice there, Lindy. Um, <laughs> you talk a little bit, I mean, uh, you know, some of the, um, and Lindy mentioned that, you know, we're not talking about this in LO. Um, you know, we're watching and um, learning from things like, you know, movies and pornography and, um, you know, where there's a lot of DJing going on and, um, you know, someone is asking here about squirting. So, is this, are these all myths that we're seeing or tell us about the biological um, aspect of what happens when you orgasm? I believe that to Dr. Londi, eh? <laughs> <laughs> like, is this for me or is this for Indy? <laughs> the biological things that happen <laughs> when you squirt. <laughs> so I just wanted to like touch on something. So we don't get taught about like sex um, at med school, right? So, I don't know, it's just like very weird, almost like closed off educational experience where we'll teach you about STIs, we'll teach you about HIV, we'll teach you about other sexual health concerns, but we won't include sexual pleasure as a part of general sexual health, which to me doesn't make sense because like I said before, sexual pleasure is such a big part of sexual health and you can't have holistic sexual health without really touching on your sexual pleasure. So like... I've had to do a lot of personal reading because of just how keen my interest is um, in the subject. And I was reading on, so I've always had a fascination with neurology and how the brain controls everything. And I'm a firm believer in the fact that sex starts in the brain, but I was reading a bit earlier, like exactly what happens in the brain and how it ties in so much with the, the benefits of orgasm and what is is happening when you orgasm. So I just wanted to touch on that at some point in this conversation quite quickly. So um, there are like four main areas in the brain that get stimulated when you are experiencing orgasm and based on studies where they um, basically hooked up people to neurotransmitters and they were 
they were tracking the brain activity that happens when both men and women experience um, sex, but more specifically orgasm, is they found that, okay, so you obviously get um, stimulation in your cerebellum, and that's basically just the main part, the, the two two hemispheres of the brain. And that controls your um, muscle contractility. And I think that's just the big thing with um, orgasm where it's that muscle contraction that happens to your perineal or your genital muscles and that expulsion either, you know, of like fluids or sexually or just that, you know, release of the tension. Um, and then they touched on, I think it's your hippocampus. So that's your emotional control center and your behavioral center. And that's where you form memories and you, where your imagination lies. So that's one of the areas that also had quite a lot of uptake and really, really goes off um, when you're experiencing orgasm. Um, and it's the area that is responsible for sexual arousal as well, right? Um, and then it's your periaqueductal um, nucleus or space in the brain. What that does is um, it controls pain modulation. And I'm not sure how many people have heard this, but when we talk about the benefits of um, masturbation, we often say masturbation can help with period pains as well. And that's one of the reasons why, because it actually activates an area in your brain that is responsible for modulating and regulating pain, where um, it basically starts off this like cascade where um, your body releases, let's say, good neurotransmitters so that your, your, your pain modulation will be better and it can actually decrease pain. So like having regular orgasms, masturbating is like a very big benefit, especially during your menstrual period, if you're a person who suffers with um, a lot of menstrual pain, so that can help quite a bit. And then the last thing, um, the paraventricular nucleus, um, and that's where you get your release of all these great endorphins and your oxytocin. Um, and that helps a lot with, so oxytocin, some people call it the bonding hormone. And it's what gets released when a mom and child first meet, you know. So it's just that it creates that air of um, intimacy. It helps with anxiety. It helps with stress relief. And um, in that particular area, it's also where you get your stress access. So what that means is it's that part that gets stimulated in your body, that cascade that gets stimulated when you're undergoing stress and your body's trying to overcome that for you. But also your reproductive access, um, access as well, where you get the um, oxytocin and the dopamine and the release of all those. Um, and I think having read that and just understanding where exactly in your brain all, um, all this happens and the subsequent responses, you know, that happen in your body, it tied so beautifully for me together with um, like all the benefits that you experience during orgasm. I found that to be something so interesting, especially because, like I said, a lot of what I do know is just my own reading and, you know, like really piecing things together, working from my personal experience as well. Um, with squirting, I'm not going to lie, the biological... <laughs> I'm also just like shying away from this question because there's so much that gets said about squirting. Like, is it pee? Is it not pee? I believe squirting isn't pee. There are many people that will tell you that it is, you know, but um, it's that. So in the definition of orgasms, when they differentiate between a female orgasm and a male orgasm, they generally tend to say that female orgasm is just the contraction of the muscles, whereas a male orgasm will be contraction of your urethra as well. And that's mostly because the urethra sits within 
the, the penile tissue, whereas for um, us females, the urethra is a separate part of your um, genital organ. Uh, yeah, it works in tandem, but it isn't necessarily, you know, a part of the structure that it goes through. But I honestly believe that in female orgasm, we should um, include that contractility of the urethra because that's what it is. So I'll just speak from my personal experience. That's what I've experienced squirting to be, you know, where you get this um, really intense contraction within that urethral area. Sorry for anybody who doesn't know, the urethra is your, it's where your urine comes out. So it connects to the bladder. So once all the urine has connected in your bladder, in order for it to come out of your body, it passes through a small tube that we call the urethra. So that's what we're talking about. Um, and it sits it sits below your clitoris and above your vagina um, in, in your perineal or your vulva, just so we have a bit of context here. But um, whatever the biological response is, I think it definitely includes that contraction of that urethral area and just that stimulation. And when that gets stimulated, I'm imagining it sends off uh, nerve endings that um, will stimulate your bladder as well. And that's where you get that expulsion of the fluid so as much as squirting isn't pee i think it does it does involve some like some urine in it i don't think that's something that you can expel and put to the side completely i don't know lindy also help me yeah no um you're definitely correct i mean because the urine and the squirt comes out of the same exit your urethra you are likely to have some um, traces of urine in it however the the color the texture is slightly different to that of urine um it can sometimes be a little um murky if that's the correct word to use um and um, and or clear and not necessarily yellow um it definitely is some Something I've had to teach myself. So, because I, or for those of you who do not know, I have an OnlyFans, and I had squirted at the hands of someone else before, but I really wanted to understand how to scientifically do it to myself. Because, again, like I said, for I like control, and I wanted to know what is it that someone else is doing. And the the moment you hit the G spot, as well as stimulate your clit, it is. Um, almost a sure, a sure guarantee that you could squirt depending on the pressure that is exerted on the actual G-spot itself. So it will feel like you are losing control or like this is something that you are unable to like kind of hold um, because it is a form of stimulation and pleasure. So it, um, yeah, a lot of people do say that it is urine. Um, I definitely do not believe that it is. Like I said, purely based on texture and the way that it looks. But um, in terms of how it how it's released, I definitely don't pee that way. Like I definitely do not pee the same way that it's quit. And that is how I'm able to tell the difference. <laughs> so, and you can see it. I mean, I, I've seen people who have baked squirt who have literally like but also the more hydrated you are the more likely you are to squirt and that just goes for anything the more hydrated you are the more likely you are to be wet or more you know that's why you're able to confuse the two but it is just fluid in your body that gets expelled at the height of the heightened sense of pleasure um and yeah i don't think it's something that people should be like aspiring to achieve it's really not the be all and end all it doesn't indicate that your sex is 
that amazing. And the same goes for orgasms, if we're being quite honest. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people think that orgasms is the goal and if you haven't had an orgasm, then you haven't had good sex. But there's so many people like myself who prefer the journey more than the destination. And it's it really is about the preference of the person. Um, but also don't go according to societal standards where you think that there's something wrong with you or something wrong with your partner if you are not able to reach climax in that way. Hey, look, I mean, I think the destination is, is also a nice place to get to. <laughs> So, you know, we won't, we won't just dismiss that. But okay, so say, say I'm a young woman starting to, and not even young, but I'm a woman who, who wants to reach that place where I can figure out my body and figure out, you know, what makes me orgasm. What am I doing? I'm, I'm, I'm alone. I'm like, okay, cool. Now I want to start figuring my body out and learning what's what. Tell us what, how do you think we should go about starting to see, understand our own bodies um, you know, give us, give us a guide. Let's just be real here. Step by step. What am I doing when I commit to this journey? So a lot of the women that have asked me how to orgasm, the first thing I start with is how you look at yourself. Do you look at yourself in the mirror? Are you familiar with your body? Are you happy with your body? Are you, are you content with what you see? And that's not just at face value. Do you put a mirror to your vagina? Can you label the different parts of your vagina? Do you know that the clitoris is not just the tip where you can see? It extends on the outside of your actual labia <laughs> or behind it. So, you know, a lot of, I try and get people to identify different parts of their bodies and in being able to identify different parts of your vagina, excuse me, it also means that you have to feel it. You have to touch it and it won't be foreign to you. So the moment you know yourself from just a physiological or biological point of view, then you can start to add pleasure onto that and start to feel, okay, when I touch the labia, what, what does that make me feel? There's not really too many nerve endings there. That's not really something that's going to get me too excited. Ooh, I pulled back my, my, the hood of my clitoris. Ooh, what was that? Why did I like that? Why was the wind going over that area ticklish and enjoyable? Dr. Lon, um, let's pick up uh, where we where we left off with Lindy. Um, you know, I know from uh, what we've just been talking about, you know, how, how did you get to the point where you started to realize what it is that you enjoyed? How was that test? How was that journey for you actually getting to uh, realize what your body likes physically? Um, I think for me personally, my body told me and it was such a... It sounds strange, but it was such a scary thing for me because I was experiencing things that I didn't think were possible. You know, um, it was one of those like, OK, what just happened? Why did it happen? And it made me withdraw because it made me feel like maybe I wasn't normal. You know, why? Why are these things happening to me? And because we're not talking about sex, I obviously had no one to ask, you know, and these weren't. These weren't things that came out like readily in conversation when we did discuss sex with my friends, for example. So no one was talking about how their body was quivering and it was just um, myself and my partner met up and this is what we did. And oh, it was great. And that was the start and the end of that um, conversation about sex. So I didn't really understand a lot of what was happening with my body. And I think it made me withdraw and it made me pull back because I was scared of being labeled as um, hypersexual and being called certain names and for liking certain things, you know, um, even sharing it with 
a partner that I was with at the time was a very difficult conversation for me to have because number one, I didn't know what it was. But number two, I don't want this person to suddenly look at me as if I am really out there and I know all of these things. Um, and I think it was in meeting my current partner now where I really almost started like listening to my body again and trying to learn, trying to learn my body, you know, with, especially like with what Lindy was saying, where do you stand in the mirror? Do you know your body? Can you label your body parts? Do you put a mirror to your vagina? Do you know what it looks like when it's healthy? Would you be able to pick up when it isn't healthy? You know, when something is amiss, do you understand your vaginal discharge? What it is, what it means, at which point in your cycle your your discharge is you know those are very those are important things and it's like small things that we as um women should be able to touch on and pick up on in our own bodies and i always say we're the biggest advocates for our own health so if i know the feel of something i'll also know when it's slightly off you know and that that like triggers something in my brain to say hold on wait a minute something isn't right here and i need to go get it checked out so um I love what Lindy was saying about that, like step by step, actually learning different parts of your body and touching and really engaging with it and thinking about it um, introspectively, where you're asking yourself relevant questions. Do I like this? How did it make me feel? Why did it make me feel this way? And those are the sorts of questions you need to be asking with every part of your sexual journey um, so that you can really understand um, where you're coming from and what you like, because my sex and your sex and only are two very different things. Our expectations are different. Our experiences are different. Um, our responses are different. You know, what we like is different. And I think um, it's really about like tapping into allowing yourself to feel what you feel guilt-free. I think that was it for me where I can, I can think about my fantasies and own my fantasies fully without me feeling like it makes me weird or it makes me an outsider. It means that I'm a certain type of way. And obviously like a lot of things tie into this. I grew up in a very religious family. Sex isn't something that we spoke about. Um, or the other side of my family is very cultural. So there's like religion here, culture here, and that often clashes. So I had like religious beliefs that were stopping me. I had cultural beliefs that were stopping me. Then I had societal, you know, norms and beliefs that were stopping me. But I think it's when you really actually just allow yourself to listen and not only to your body but to to the thoughts that you have and we all have sexual fantasies and it would be very weird for someone to say oh no I'm no we all have some sort of sexual fantasy whether that fantasy happens when you're by yourself when you're in the act of sex you know after the, the act of sex when you're thinking about your experience but it, it's those things like really honing into those things and allowing yourself to feel your feelings and to think your thoughts guilt-free, I think is the beginning of it all. Cause I, I will always preach the sex starts in your brain. And it's like with foreplay, if someone takes you a good morning message that makes you feel some type of, by the time you get home, trust and believe. Mm. All right. You're excited to get home. You're there. It's like, hello, I'm back. So um, what are we doing? What are we doing? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's that, being kind to yourself, being patient with yourself, and really being non-judgmental towards yourself. And I know it's not as easy as we're making it sound. It's obviously, it's, it's, it's a big undertaking. And um, there's a lot of things that come into play, you know, like your mental health, um, 
your past traumas, your beliefs, as we've spoken Mm -hmm. about. Yeah, your upbringing, all of those things, you know, like there are so many factors that come into play and it's not as easy as saying, oh my God, I'm no longer going to, you know, guilt myself when I think about something. But it's that, I think it's actively choosing to allow yourself to be, if that makes sense. I'm sounding so philosophical, but I don't know if that makes sense. But it's that, that active choosing of you allowing yourself to be and saying, today I am going to explore my clitoris and I'm doing it without any guilt. I'm doing it with intention. Mm. You know, today I'm going to look at my body and I, like, I'm, I'm going to be honest with how the image I see back, like how the reflection makes me feel. And I'm going to actually note those, those feelings and address them one by one. Cause I think that's when you can get to a place where you are at ease with yourself and your sexual pleasure with yourself will, it'll change. It'll really change. Another great way just to add on to that, to be, to be able to trust yourself comes with knowledge and knowledge is power. So there's an episode on Netflix called Sex Explained and it's episode one. And they literally speak about fantasies and about how fantasies come in different forms, whether it's from a group perspective, whether it's that you like older men or women, whether it's that you like having sex in dangerous places, all of those things kind of make you realize, hey, if this is the percentage of the amount of people in the world that like to have sex, in a dangerous place, excuse me, then I'm not alone. And you start to, you know, kind of feel like, you know, it's normal because there are people out there who are willing to speak on their experiences, for example, myself, so that others can feel like they're not alone. And the more research you do, the more trust you'll have of yourself and your feelings. And therefore the next thing that you feel that's not far, that's foreign to you won't be so foreign. It'll be like, I'm sure there's someone else out there who feels this way. And even if there isn't, it's okay for me to, to feel this way. So it really is just about trust and intention and being like, you know what, I'm going to choose me because how many other people choose themselves? And if we're being realistic, let's think of men in the bigger scheme of things. They know exactly what they want. They want to either bust a nut. They want to have lots of women simultaneously, whatever the case may be. A boyfriend will tell you, hey, I want to have a threesome, but it can't be with another guy. And you're just like, oh, well, that's a bit hypocritical selfish you know so the moment you start to like realize okay I'm going to choose me because it's my pleasure that's involved too you start to do things and put yourself in spaces that honor those choices I mean look we were we were still uh you guys are dropping gems and like you're making notes here <laughs> so tell us a little let's let's continue a little bit more um Lindy you were talking about you know really and for both you and Dr. Bond you were talking about getting to know yourself, get that mirror out, see, you know, what feels good, what doesn't feel good. That I think is really making an investment in yourself, you know, the importance of your sexual health and really understanding you can't go through life faking it and not, you know, getting the pleasure that, you know, so in reach if you really just explored yourself and understood what your body reacts to. So very, very important. So we've mentioned a lot today that, you know, uh, family background, your you know, religious, cultural, and the fact that, you know, during LO, I don't know what they teach in LO now, but, you know, understanding as a woman, your body and um, your sexuality, how, how, how do we start approaching our young girls, our daughters, those of us who have, um, you know, young women who, who look up to us for other things and just being able to give them that advice that we didn't get. I mean, I'll start with you, Dr. Lundue. What What would you say to a young woman, a younger version of yourself, 
that you wish someone had told you about you know your your, your sexuality as a woman um, i think the biggest thing is i wish it was normalized you know where i wasn't brought up being told that sex is for procreation and procreation only because that's that bringing that i had you know and um I was often told that if I see a boy, I need to run away, which is absolutely ridiculous because there are boys everywhere. There were boys in my house. I have five brothers. So where exactly on this green earth am I supposed to be? Do you know what I mean? But um, I think for me, a very, very big thing and something I believe in so firmly is we should start talking about sex as soon as our children understand. And by that, I obviously don't mean you'll sit a five-year-old down and throw words around like clitoris and pleasure. But at the age of five, there is definitely something that you can teach a girl or a boy child about, not even about sex per se, but just about their body so that we all understand that talking about our bodies is something that's normal, number one, because I think that's that's why a lot of us are where we are today, where just talking about your body is taboo. It wasn't normalized, you know. Um, at certain at certain age levels, at certain maturity levels, let me put it that way, kids are able to understand. And I don't think we give um, kids enough credit. Oftentimes, a kid will come to you with a question and you're just like, what? Where did you hear that? And then you often get parents who are still answering in these weird crypto like cryptic anecdotes don't tell funny stories about how the stork brings be honest about it i mean there's no need for you to say you know a penis has to enter her vagina and ovulation has to happen to a five-year-old but tell them that mommy and daddy made the baby we didn't go to the store to go buy a baby there wasn't a bird that came and dropped the baby off at the doorstep you know and i think those are those are the habits that we need to start breaking as the upcoming generation, as, as parents ourselves, where we make it normal to speak to our children about things like our bodies, what's, what's right, what isn't right, when, where in our body can we be touched, where can we not be touched, who should touch us, who shouldn't touch us. You know, create a network of, um, have your child understand that there are safe adults that they can talk to when they feel unsafe what does feeling unsafe entail particularly what will they feel in their bodies talk about consent with kids from a young age and this is not just about sexual consent but if i teach my son now and this is a big thing in my house where if my if i want to kiss him on the cheek for example and he says no i need to respect that no because what i'm doing is i'm creating boundaries for him and i'm teaching that i'm teaching him that his no is valid. When he says no, I need to step back. I shouldn't force myself onto him, if that makes sense. And it's the same, I extend the same thing to grandparents and um, extended family. And that's such a hard conversation to have because if my mother wants to, and you know how older parents, like our parents are, the older generation. It's like, no, he said no. And it's okay for him to say no, you know, but it, it's things like that where you teach consent and boundaries from an early age. I think that's it for me. Like, I, I wish I was told more when I was younger so that when I got older, I didn't think that what was happening was wrong, number one. And I didn't have to recondition myself and reteach myself. I wish it was something that I was taught and was conditioned to from the beginning. And let's actually name body parts for what they are. Let's talk to our kids 
the way you would want to be spoken to, again, I'm going to reiterate this. I'm not saying throw big words around and say inappropriate things, but you can say the correct things in an appropriate manner for the age and maturity of your child. And I think for me, that's the biggest thing. Absolutely. Thanks, Dr. Lon. Thank you so much. Lindy, what's your, what's your opinion? Literally on? everything, nail on the head. I was going to also highlight how important it is to speak on your body parts, teach the child the correct body part. Um, I dealt with a father who was completely guilt-ridden. He was raising his daughter and she was in nursery school and she kept telling him that the gardener was playing with her flower. And he just took it for, you know, oh yeah, he's a gardener. That's what he does. And it turned out that he was actually molesting her. And because she was taught that her vagina is a flower, that is what she was saying. And she was trying to actually say that this is what this man is doing to me. Um, and it went on for so long. And obviously the child was both traumatized as well as the parent. But it's so important. It's so integral in terms of how we raise our children to name the body parts. There's no shame in biologically naming what God has given you. That is what it is called. Why are we trying to think of a different form or a different way to sugarcoat it? Because that's where we create shame around certain body parts. So definitely important that you're naming the body parts as they are. But not only that, speaking on consent is so important. Like if I understand that I don't want this and I don't like this. And if I say to my mother, I don't like it. And she accepts that then when someone else doesn't, I'm able to go to her and say, I said no to this person, but they were, they didn't take it the same way you would. The adult example that I have growing up is when you say, when I say no, you take it as no, but this other adult didn't do that. So why was it different? And you start to question as a child, because children are very inquisitive. They're growing, they're learning, they want to know. So they're more likely to ask questions. But if you create stigma and shame around certain topics, they're going to shy away from getting the correct information. As a parent, be open to speaking to your child about anything to do with sex and anything to do with trust, to be quite honest, because I was quite fortunate in the sense that I didn't have a sheltered upbringing where we were taught about the birds and the bees and it wasn't called the birds and the bees. We had storybooks on sex that were drew um, illustrations that were showing how mommy laid an egg and daddy has his seeds that planted against that egg, you know, and it was just things that my mom would read to us as bedtime stories. So we had a, a, an understanding of, okay, there wasn't a stork who came and dropped off a baby. So I was very fortunate in the sense that the, the, the trust that was um, built for with my parents from a very young age. And it was both me, my dad and my mom. I mean, when I'd get picked up from the club by my dad and I started clubbing very young at the age of 13, my dad was like, I would prefer it if I'm the one who's dropping you off and picking you up because I know you're not getting into any car with a drunk boy. I know where you are because I dropped you off there. And if anything should happen, because I have allowed you, you're, I'm going to be the first person you call and trust every single time something went wrong. My dad was the first person I called. And it, it's the smallest things like that, that started to build trust to be able to talk about absolutely anything. So when we get in the car and we say, daddy, this boy did this, and it's a whole gossip session, but he's just driving home trying to, you know, ensure we get there safely. But I'm going on and on and on about how I like this boy and how I don't like this boy. And, oh, and he's like, but I thought it was this boy last week. And, you know, conversations like that are encouraging to your child to do the right thing. And if they are getting lost along the way to come and seek guidance from you.
We need to speak to the boy child more. We need to teach the boy child the girls' parts of their bodies as well as vice versa. Because, I mean, when I lived in Ghana just a few months ago, a little girl was like, oh, don't look at my penis. And I was like, we don't have a penis. <laughs> but it took a lot for me to not laugh and then to sit them both down and to say, okay, you're nine. How is it that at nine years old, you don't know that this is your vagina and it's different to a penis? So that's because of how conservative the country is in itself, you know? So it it literally is going to take a lot for us to fight for the syllabus to change. And that's also where it starts. But at home, your child can definitely have more knowledge than the average child if you're just going based on the school syllabus. So be willing to get external books, toys, get, um, you know, things that show different body parts, help the child name the body parts because knowledge is power and there's nothing wrong with knowing the right thing. There's a lot that, that I've gotten from chatting to you this evening. So I'm going to finish with you, uh, Lindy. Um, so say now, you know, we've had this chat, I'm thinking, look, it's time I took control of my own sexual pleasure and, you know, start this journey where I, I'm getting the pleasure that I want in the way that I want it. What, what's the first step do you think that, you know, I can start doing something tomorrow? What, what do I, what would you suggest is the first thing to do if this is saying, now I want to start my sexual pleasure journey? So depending on whether you're sexually active or not will, will, will depend on the advice that I give. But if you are not sexually active at all, um, I would then start with, like I said, exploring and understanding your body, being comfortable with yourself. Uh, looking in the mirror naked and that also will improve your self-confidence because you start to love what you've got. Like you start to find the more you look at your body, the more you find something beautiful to love, something you didn't see yesterday, a different eye. Um, I take nudes. And when I first started, I hated my body. I was like, I'm a 12 year old boy. I have no curves. I've got a flat chest and da, 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 da. And people are like, you can't be negative about your body because you're skinny. You know, it doesn't work like that, but you can hate your body if it's not in the shape or the form that you are seeing on social media or whatever the case may be. And when I did start taking nudes, I still do it now, even when I'm on my period, when I'm bloated and I'm feeling ugly, because when I look at myself next week, I'll be like, actually, you look so bad. And it's just because my psyche is different. The space and my mental space is in a different place. So obviously that is definitely going to affect how you look at yourself in the moment and how you look at yourself looking back. Um, so I definitely would encourage being confident with your body because that way no one else can also make you feel inadequate. And that's when you're engaging. From a physical point of view, feel yourself. And that also goes for feeling not just your vagina, but your breasts. You need to know when something's off. Do I have a lump? I mean, I felt my body so often. I picked up a lump in my breast at the age of 14. And, you know, it's just like, no one taught me to do that. No one said, this is how you are supposed to, you know, touch yourself as you grow up. But my mom did. And lucky for me, I had a mother who would also be very, um, aware of my the changes in my bodies and speak on what she was seeing oh your bum's getting a little bigger oh your hips are getting a little wider and that speaks on puberty and then you get excited oh this is what comes with puberty getting a little bum fluff on my vagina you know I'm getting hair you know and to not be ashamed of things like that to also say it's okay to have hair what are the protective reasons that you've got that hair because 
I was like, ew, hair, shave at the age of 13. And that has affected me <laughs> way, way, I'm 31 now, you know, and I'm like, damn it, I should have shaved a lot later or not at all. You know, there's absolutely nothing with the way that your body develops naturally. And I think the moment we start to accept those things, sex will become so much easier because that's just an add-on. That's just an add-on to what you already have and how you are moving and engaging with someone else or even yourself. And if you are not excited about sex, that's also okay because there's asexuality where you like intimacy and you like to touch and hold and kiss, but you don't necessarily like the actual sexual experience. And that's also perfectly fine. There's people out there who will match you and you'll be able to be with that person who are even married and you never have to have sex for the rest of your life. Don't feel pressured into doing anything that you don't want. And if you try something and it's not for you, take note of it, but ask yourself why. What is it you didn't like about it? Is it because it made you feel ashamed? Did you feel dirty? Is it because of what someone else may have told you? And start to try and dispel the myths that come with everyone else's standards so that you can create your own. When someone tells you that you're ugly and you don't believe it, you're going to keep going with the thought that, okay, no, I'm pretty. But if someone tells you, no, when you have sex, it makes you means you're not going to go to heaven. You can literally also change that mindset. Yes, it's been it's the way we've been raised, but there's certain things that you choose for yourself and it's all about intention. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> Thank you guys. I, I for one, have, have really enjoyed chatting to both of you. Um, I hope it's been valuable to every single person who is, is tuning in and is with us here. Guys, we, we love bringing you this kind of uh, conversation. And we hope that you'll continue to engage with us. Lindy, thank you so, so much. Dr. Londiwe, thank you both for joining. And we really appreciate your input. And um, yeah, I hope it's been as valuable to everyone else as it has been for me. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please visit our website, www.zoehealth.com to share and rate this podcast and to access more content and resources like this. Join us on our next episode as we bring you more of the women's health and wellness topics that matter to you.